Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. I just want to ask one quick favor before we jump into this episode. You know, I've been organically growing this podcast for over five years, and I need your help to keep the momentum going. There's two things you can do. One is leaving a five-star rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Spotify is a lot easier. You'll see the rating button right at the top. Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll down the page a little bit, and you'll see a write a review button. Additionally, if you want to share this out with your audience on your social channels, text it to a friend or colleague or family member, whatever you have to do to pass this along to individuals that you find may need the help and may be looking to get started. So either of those things or both of you like would be appreciative so I can get this podcast out to more individuals and we can help more people get started and move in the right direction to a more happy and fulfilling life. So thanks again for your help and grateful to have you here on another episode. Let's get it started. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast, Laura Gastner-Odding. She is a keynote speaker, she is a catalyst, she is a coach, and she's also an author. And her new book, Wonder Hell, Why Success Doesn't Feel Like It Should and What to Do About It, just launched in early April of 2023. So I was excited to bring Laura back on. We had quite the wide-ranging conversation, always a fun time talking with her, and I hope you all enjoy it. So without further ado, please welcome in Laura Gassner-Odding. Good to chat with you again. How are you? I'm 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 doing all right. Okay. I'm doing all right. I am uh, I'm I'm I've I've survived book launch. I'm I'm on the other side, so I was going to ask, I was, yeah, I was going to get into that. I mean, we could just get into the conversation here if you want. Yeah, I mean, why not? A, sure. Uh, keep it, keep it fun. Obviously you're on last year and, and you know, at that time you were talking about wonder hell and now it's out, yes. you know, so what by a month out, I think, or three and a half weeks ago, it came out something like that. Yeah. Yeah. April it came 4th. out on April 4th. So yeah, it, it'll be a month tomorrow. Yeah. So how it's do crazy. you, you know, I was going to ask you, maybe this is a fun place to start because you talk about you know, success. And then the other side of success is, you know, people aren't as happy. So are you happy today or what, where are you at? Where's your state today? A month out. After? Yeah. You know, it's very <laughs> funny. I am. Um, I would say that I'm in wonder hell about wonder hell. Right. So, you know, I worked as hard as I possibly could to try to get this book to debut on a bestseller list. The New York Times curates their list. They're never going to pick me. The USA Today list is on hiatus right now. So the Wall Street Journal is the only game in town. Mm. And I worked very hard to try to get the numbers and have them, the books distributed in sales in the way that I could get on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And I did. And I thought I was going to like cling to nine or 10, spot nine or 10. And I debuted at number two. And now I'm like, number two? How do I get to be number one? Damn, James Clear. Like yeah. James, James Clear has been number one. He's been there for the like Wall four Street years. Right? For like years. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I got to say, I have a hard time believing that 5,000 people every single week still pick up that book and read it for the very first time. Like, he, that's definitely like bulk buys and speaking and he games it so that, the, you know, they get counted and good for him. Like no shade. I would do the same thing if I were him. But yeah, now I'm like, okay, I came really close to number one, which wasn't even my goal before. And now I'm like, hmm. How do you, how do you get on the list? What can you share? Like, I don't even know the background of how you get on those lists. And, and yeah, you have to sell a metric ton of books, basically. So um, for the Wall Street Journal, they usually say you need to sell like 3,500, 4,000 books to be safe. Um, 
or to like hope to get like spot nine or 10. And if you definitely want to be safe and know you'll be on the list, it's probably 6,000. When USA Today was doing their list, it was 6,000 or more to get on that list. And the New York Times, you have to sell, you know, the biggest number of books that week, but they also curate it. So if you are a celebrity and you have a book coming out, but you don't sell as many copies, they may put you on the list. If you have a highly anticipated book from a big five publisher, they may put you on the list. If you're me and you sell... 4,729 books the very first week, as I did, and you're with an indie publisher, they're not going to put you on the book list, no matter that you were the 28th most sold business nonfiction book that week, hmm. which, I'm sorry, the 18th. I was the 18th most sold business nonfiction book that week, but they're not going to put me on the list. Who's tracking the numbers of this? Like, what counts as a sale? Is that on Amazon? Is that in Barnes and Noble? Is that online in bookstore? Like, who counts those numbers? I, I, I don't know. It, it's everywhere, um, and it's counted by a company called BookScan. And okay. so, USA Today and Wall Street Journal report directly BookScan numbers. And New York Times, as I mentioned, is BookScan plus they curate people in or out depending on what they. Okay. what they want. Uh, and it's like three guys in a room who make the decision. So yeah, it's counted as book scan. And it's a tricky thing because if you buy one book on Amazon, it counts as one book. It used to be that if you bought 10 books on Amazon at the same exact time, it counted as one book, right? So there's some question about whether or not that still is the case. Um, but if I'm buying, say, 500 books for, um, if a client of mine is, you know, doing an event for 500 people and they're buy, buying 500 books and they buy those 500 books from one place, those don't always count as 500 books. So when you want to try to get on a list, what you often do is you'll say, I've got a client who wants 500 books and I'll buy 100 of them, of them through this bookseller, 100 of them through this bookseller, 100 through that one, right? And you sort of divide up the, the, the purchases so that they come from lots of different zip codes. Does it... Uh... I didn't know we were going to go on this rabbit hole to start, but if it's okay, I'm just curious. Now. Yeah, sure. I mean, what? it's lots of, it's, it's a lot of game playing to be honest. Well, like if, you know, so Amazon, there's certain, you know, so I my like my children's book, I know it's not a, a like a nonfiction publisher, but I'm using that as the example of like, I did the KDB publishing, like I couldn't do a pre-sale or anything. It was literally the book launched that day and then people can buy. I know you can obviously have pre-sales. Does pre-sales count that first? Does it all count in the first week if you do a pre-sale? Mm -hmm. Yes. So anything that counts from the day you announce you're selling the book all the way until the end of the week that your book comes out counts wow. as the first week of sales. Okay. All right. So that's why you see authors are always like, please pre-order my book. So pre-ordering a book is a great way to signal to retailers, this book has some juice, please carry it. It's a great way to signal to media, this book has some buzz, please talk about it. And it's a great way to signal to the list makers, this book actually is real. It's not just somebody buying 5,000 copies and putting them in the, you know, in the garage. Mm -hmm. So the pre-orders actually are, are the most important thing for an author when a book is coming out. Did you do anything different for this launch versus past books? Like anything that was quote unquote successful or you felt was more impactful? Yeah, I mean, so my last book, Limitless, came out and it debuted at number two on the Washington Post bestseller list. So here's my question. Um, so I was on the Today Show, Good Morning America, you know, Washington Post, all of that. How many people do you think I needed to have on my mailing list in order to make that happen? To let people know about the book, the book is coming out. What do you think that takes? To just to let them, to, to get to those, the 5,000 books in the week or? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I'm going to guess a high number. I'm going to say you probably need to have 25 to 50,000 people on your list. Yeah. So guess how many I have on my list. I had on my list at that time. I, I, 20,000? I don't know. <laughs> Lower. Seven. Lower. 4,700. <laughs> it's a trick question, uh, Brian, because I literally did not have a mail okay. list. At oh, okay. The time. All right. So, you I caught mean, me, for you to ask me the question of like, what did I do differently now? Like, I had like 200 followers on Instagram and like six friends on Facebook. And now I have like 35,000 followers on Instagram and 10,000 people on my mailing list. And so everything is so different because when my last book came out, mm. I didn't. Not only did I not know how to play the game, yeah. I didn't even know there was a game. Like, I just didn't know. I honestly, I had started speaking and I'd found myself on bigger and bigger stages. And I started to notice that all the people who were getting paid what I considered real money, quote unquote, real money, all had books. So I was like, I better get me one of them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just wrote the book as a fancy business card. And I really didn't expect anything i really thought like three people would buy the book like my mom my dad my sister and maybe my sister would buy it used for my dad right like i really i really had no expectation so the the answer to your question of what did i do differently is frankly everything i did everything differently this time including even how i wrote the book like when i was on good morning america in in may after the book had come out in the previous april the the producer kept asking me like okay we're gonna do a segment but like what are the visuals what are the visuals like what kind of visuals can we have on the screen while you're talking and i was like i don't know and so we crafted this whole set out of visuals that came out of giving votes to your life in your life to people who shouldn't even have voices so we had like a voting you know little voting box and i like ripped up a little fake ballot mm -hmm. and as i was writing wonder hell Wonder Hell is so rife with imagery, right? It's all based around an amusement park and there's Imposter Town and Doubtsville and Burnout City. And each one of those has a, has five rides and each of the rides evokes an emotion that you're having when you're in that experience of Wonder Hell. Mm -hmm. And so even as I was writing the book, I was like, what's the visual? Like I have 15 potential visuals for media now. So I sort of wrote it knowing that I could bring the message across in a super effective way that also dovetailed well with what I've now learned the media likes when they cover books. Okay. Well, and it's one of the kind of points you talk about, right? Is like the journey is this ongoing cycle, but you kind of have to learn from that. So you got to learn from the past, right? History doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes, right? But like, so how do I kind of do things in a similar fashion, but also totally different? It's kind of, you're pulling from each lever, I would assume, right? There's things you've yeah. learned from last time, but now it's there's things that you've never experienced before this time, too. Right. I mean, so how was I able to make Limitless so successful, having no mailing list and no platform or anything? I showed up for people in my life for 40 years. And so when I turned around and asked them to show up for me and pre-buy the book and to, you know, to introduce me to people they know, everyone showed up back. Like, mm -hmm. they all showed up for me. And so, you know, if I were to say that I did anything similar this time as I did last time, I just went into it with an abundant mentality. Like I went into it knowing that I was just going to show up for other people and I was going to say yes to everything I possibly could. And I would spend the last few years, anytime anybody else had a book coming out or a podcast or a talk, I was, I promoted it. I, you know, I posted about it and I hoped that those people would show up back for me. And a lot of them did. Some of them didn't, which was kind of 
disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everyone's got something going on in their life that we know nothing about. And I'm just making the assumption that people who didn't show up back for me didn't show up back for me because they got other stuff going on that's more important than me right now. And I'm not making it my problem. Yeah. Because yeah. if I choose to make it my problem, then that's just like drinking poison every single day. Yeah. Um, do you read your reviews on Amazon or, or these other sites? So <laughs> I I don't because I can tell you that I have like 300 great reviews on Amazon for Limitless and like one one-star review. And I could probably tell you word for word that one star review and it just speaking of drinking poison every day right like it just i I don't know like the one the one star review i have on limitless was something like she thinks she's funnier than she is something like that like she's not a very good writer she thinks she's funnier than she is and like i don't do a lot of things really well but like i'm a pretty cracker writer like i'm pretty i'm pretty happy about that like maybe i'm not as funny as i think but like the writing I'll die on that. I'll die on that hill. Yeah. You know, don't give me a column of numbers to, to 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 add. I can't do that to save my life. But like writing, so no, I don't. I I've I've learned not to read the reviews. Do you, Do you know what uh, David Gog? You know David Goggins is. Yes. You know yeah, he course. he like makes a mixtape of all like he reads back all the negative comments and puts them into an audio <laughs> mixtape and then runs to that. That's what he says he does. I mean, that's that sounds I, like I, him though, but you know. I don't know that I have as many demons inside of me as David Goggins has inside of him. Like there's a little bit of like self-flagellation, a little bit of punishment there that I, I don't, I I can understand why that makes him tougher and harder when he runs, but I don't, I don't know that that's, I don't know that I'm incentivized by the demons in the way that he is. Well, and for folks that haven't went, can I read a, can I read a review? I was doing oh, some, pick, yeah, you, I was doing I some, guess so. I, absolutely. I was doing some picking before and I said, wow, this is like, this is pretty cool. Like this is well-written. Um, <clears throat> this says, this is a review, uh, it's from, someone from Canada. You know, that feeling when you're terrified to get on a roller coaster and you'll only do it with that one friend, the one who has some magical power to summon your inner daredevil makes you look good by telling you when to smile for the mid ride photo and yet has the empathy and discretion to tell no one that you puked as soon as you got off. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Laura Gassner Odding just became that person for all of us. Success oh is a gosh. roller coaster, baby. Get on, strap in, arms up, and off we go. Wow. Isn't that pretty freaking cool? So that's, I mean, um, um, that's, wow. I, was get, I, I wanted to get you to incredible. blush on the podcast here. I wanted- Yeah, I mean, that's like, I that's amazing and and i i am honored that i'm along for the ride with that person yeah. wow did you think you would have that type of impact on people years ago when you were i mean talk about imposter syndrome and all that stuff right i mean with your beginning of the journey no i i i think most writers who are not academics who write uh non-fiction books write the book they need and mm. i just I just needed this book, you know, when Limitless came out and it was successful and I didn't know what I was or who I was or what I could hope to achieve or what kind of ambition I could have. I, I looked around, I tried to find books to tell me how to, how to manage like the, the burden of my potential that I was feeling so deeply. And all I found were these books that were like crush it and lean in and got to hustle harder and lean a rise and grind. And none of that worked for me. I just, it was, it, so I started talking to other interesting people that I knew one of the great 
one of the great uh, random things about the job that I have right now, like going around the world and keynote speaking, is that there's other people in the green room who are these incredible humans who have these incredible stories to tell. And so like along the way, over the course of the last few years, I've just met so many interesting people who are, you know, startup unicorns and glass ceiling shatterers and Olympic medalists. And so I just sort of throughout the pandemic called them and I was like, okay, can we have a conversation about this thing? And, and when I started to notice that there was a pattern there, right? Where like everyone, no matter what age, what stage, what phase, they were all experiencing the same uncertainty and 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 exhaustion and and envy and imposter syndrome and doubt and and burnout. And I was like, all right, there's something here. So I don't know that I sort of set out in this way to say I'm gonna have an effect on people. I just wanted to figure out how to deal with all of the ick that was happening in my own life. Yeah. Have you, and maybe talking to those folks in your own experience, like the, the whole idea of getting started, because it's one thing to, as we talk about going that roller coaster and you have the, the success and then you have the burnout and all this stuff, but that first time of actually starting sometimes is the biggest hurdle. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm curious. And the reason I'm asking this, and this is more top of mind, I was writing this blog article the other day, like about my the my first children's book that launched in 2021. I wrote it in 2012. Oh, and, wow. I, and I shelved it for seven years. I didn't do anything with it because I was like, who am I? I'm not a children's book author. What the hell am I doing? I'm, a, you know, and so it took me so long. Now, obviously starting the podcast and stuff like that helped me kind of give me the, the confidence. But I'm curious if if in your conversations, there's anything that you've learned to sit, like going back to the 2012 year, you know, Brian of like, this is why you should have started. Why did you wait seven years? Is there anything that you've learned in those experiences to help someone get started? Okay. So I'll say two things. I'll say the first is that I think the hard thing about doing hard things isn't the hard, it's the do right? Mm -hmm. It's not the like, I'm going to go run a marathon. Like I'm going to race. Running a marathon is hard, but the hardest thing about running the marathon is getting up every single day during training and going on a run when you don't want to. Yeah. Right. So like, by the time you get to the marathon, you're trained, you can do it. It's just some sort of mind over math. It's a math problem at that point. Mm -hmm. What kind of fuel, what kind of hydration, how fast should you run? What's your energy level? Right. It's just a math problem. The hard thing about it is not it's a hard marathon. It's the doing the every day of of training. And so what I say to people is like, if you want to do something that's hard, just start. Because once you get going, you start building momentum. And along the way, you figure out what works, what doesn't work. But once you're going, the the the, the doing actually changes you from being somebody who wishes they could do it to somebody who is doing it. Even though you haven't done it yet, that the the be the person who is doing it is a much different person yeah. than somebody who wants to do it, right? And so it just sort of changes who you are. My in-laws were here this weekend and they were trying to decide whether or not they wanted to go for a walk and they couldn't decide and they were tired and maybe they ate too much lunch. And I said to my mother-in-law, tonight, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be the person who went for the walk or do you want to be the person who didn't go for the walk? And she said, well, I want to be the person who went for the walk. And I'm like, well, then go. And she's like, okay. And then she left and she went for a walk and that was it. But yeah. it was just thinking about like, who do you want to be? And you want to be the person who's done it. That's number one. Number two is I think that we think that everything that we're doing, if it isn't a direct path from A to Z, doesn't count. And I think that there are so many other things that we do that by the time we start going, 
we pass step A and we realize we're already at like F or G because we've already collected all this knowledge and wisdom and, and experience and network that's going to help us along. And so, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's like side quests in video games, right? Like if you're not ready to, to like, you're waiting for your friend to, you know, finish their homework or something. And you're like, I, 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 what am I going to do? If the, if the aim of the goal is to get on the horse, go to the, to the castle, slay the dragon and save the princess, if you're sitting around and you can't get started, what can you do? You're a farmer. You can till your wheat. You could take it to the market. You can sell it. You can buy the horse. You can buy the sword so that when your friend is ready and they finish doing the dishes, you can get on your horse. You can go to the castle. You can slay the dragon and you can save the princess, right? So we're, we are, it's not like we're sitting in this sort of stationary place in this sort of comatose existence before we get started just because you haven't started doesn't mean you're not doing other things that when you do get started you'll realize are actually already in your toolkit that's one of the best damn visuals i've ever heard so i love i love that um, yeah that actually comes from my son my son who is, is 20 right now years and years ago i was driving him uh to the dentist early one morning and he he, he asked me how i was doing and i'm like oh, i got a terrible night of sleep I, I don't feel that well. I got a chapter that's due. I'm not going to be able to write it. And my son was like, well, just go on a side quest. And I was like, what's a side quest? And he was like, well, you can't, you're not gonna do any good writing today. He's like, but what kind of research can you do? Do you want to like organize some of your visuals? Do you want to maybe you clean your office so that when you sit down to write tomorrow, your brain is clear. And I was like, oh, awesome. So like, we can always be doing something, even if it's not a direct path to the finish line. Yeah, you know, you make a great point as you think about it, because, and I, I guess I think about the podcast that way, but I was talking with someone, I can't remember who it was, maybe a month ago or so about the, um, this idea, like starting a business they wanted to start, but it was like, well, if you don't have a lot of knowledge, go interview five people about the topic that you want to start and get some knowledge and gain. So again, you are starting in a way, you're just not doing the thing maybe you think you should be doing, but you're actually gaining some knowledge or insight and you are really starting in essence. Yes. Yeah. That's a, I like that. I, I, I do this like the side quest. Is it, is it, is he saying side quest or side quest? I want to make sure I get this right. Side, a, it's a quest you do on the side of <laughs> okay. the main quest, right? So like the side quests are all the things that we do. Like, okay, maybe today you feel like garbage and you're not going to go work out, but what can you do? You can sit at your desk and yeah. you can plan out your workouts for the week and like make, make time for them, schedule them in, right? Like that works. That is still towards the goal of yeah. being a fitter person right yeah. like all like if you think about like what are all the things you need to do and like what are the resistance points and a lot of times the resistance points are the things that we can be doing in these side quests so like this weekend i've been traveling for the last month last two months in you know in advance of the book coming out and after the book came out just like keynotes and media and podcasts and just on and on and on and i came back home on Thursday night, and I took one look at my office, and it looked like a bomb had exploded in there. I mean, my, the piles had piles upon piles. It was just, I couldn't find anything. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm home for three days, and then I've got a two-day work week, and then I head off to Chicago, and then Austin, and then Atlanta, and then LA, and my, just like, it starts going again. And I was like, I'm so tired, I can't even see straight. What can I do? So I cleaned my office and I didn't clean my office in a day. It literally took me three days, like three different, like two hour chunks to go through. But like the first thing I did is I went through and I was like, okay, let me just 
go through the mail and figure out there are there any bills that have to get paid, like anything that's like on fire anywhere. So I sort of went through and I'm like, what's on fire? Okay, what 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 um do I just need to organize and prioritize? What do I need to just not touch today? But I'm going to make a list that I know I'm going to touch it later when I get back. And I started assigning all the different piles to different places. And now I walked into my office this Monday morning and I was like, huh. It's organized. It's clean. And I could sit down and I banged out a couple projects that I've just been, you know, procrastinating on because I just messy desk, messy mind. Yeah. So I just, I think that there, we can always be moving forward, even if it's not direct. When you're traveling as much, because obviously I'm assuming that's an exception, not the rule. That's, you know, you're traveling, but not as much, maybe as the last two months, right? Of the, yes. With the launching a book. How do you alter your schedule? How do you like Think about if you have, because you probably have other projects you want to do that maybe you can't get done uh, because you're speaking or again, whatever, you know, doing interviews, mm -hmm. what have you. So how is it, how do you think about it differently? Like, do you just like say like, all right, screw it the next month or two, I know it's not going to be, or does that bother you? Like, I can't get to this. Does that put more stress in your life? Does that, I'm just kind of curious, I guess, because I go through that a lot when you have these things that are different than normal. It's like, how do mm -hmm. I handle that? Because I don't, I don't, I don't have a system in place to do that. Ah, well, so my dear friend, Rahaf Harfouche, wrote a book called Hustle and Float. And she's got a LinkedIn learning course, actually, called Humane Productivity that I would absolutely recommend that you look at. Rahaf put together uh, like a, a planner that uh, it's just like a digital planner. And I download it onto my iPad where I can draw all over it. And mm -hmm. one of the very first lessons Rahaf taught me is that we have far less time than we think we have. And I don't mean that in this existential, like you're going to die kind of way. Right. I mean, like every single week, you have far less time than you think. So if I'm looking at my month of May, for example, and I know that I'm going to be in Austin, Atlanta, Chicago, LA, DC, that's five places where I'm going to be over the course of four weeks. I also know that in June, I have a bunch of travel, some new keynotes I have to give, both of my kids' birthdays, my husband's birthday, my younger son's high school graduation, and we're going to be leaving for a family vacation, right? right? So, like, I'm looking at May and June, and it's busy. So, the first thing I did is I took May and June, and rather than putting in all the work that I have, I blocked out all the time that I knew I was going to be, like, brain dead, mm -hmm. right? So, like, if I'm giving three keynotes in a week, there's not a lot of space in that week for me to do anything else. Even though I'm only on stage for an hour, I'm still with my client. I'm doing the schmooze. I've got the sound check. I've got to do some rehearsals in my, you know, in my, in my room. I can't, there's not a lot I can pack in. So I just block that week off. Then I block the next week off because I know I've also got keynotes. Then I've got a week where I've got lots of time. But the question is, okay, there's nothing on my calendar for the third week in May but I'm going to be exhausted and I'm going to have a whole bunch of client projects that I need to finish up. Like there's things that I have to do. I've got to clean the office again. There's going to be bills to pay, like all yeah. that stuff. So rather than having, say there's four weeks in the month and you've got five days and you've got, so you have 20 days. I know that one of those days is uh, Memorial Day. So my son's going to be home. I want to hang out with him. I know one of those days I'll probably, you know, be exhausted. I might be sick. Maybe I'll be hungover. Like there are days that you take out. So it turns out rather than 20 work days in May, I really have like six. So when I look at my calendar and I say, what am I going to accomplish in the second quarter of the year? I'm not saying I have three months each of 20 work days. I really have like 17 days in April, six days in May. And I have like, 12 days in June. Hmm. So if you add those up, that's a whole lot less time than three months, which is what we think. So we assign projects that are three month projects when we really have what would that add up to like 37 days. 
Yeah, that's right. And so then, of course, we feel behind. We feel like we didn't get anything done. We feel badly. We feel overwhelmed. So what Rahaf taught me to do is to really think about, like, if I want to create a course for Wonder Health, there is a week in July where I have absolutely nothing going on. I won't have had a busy week the week before. I'm not like, there's a week where there's nothing. So I've blocked off that week as like Wonder Health course. I'm going to work on the Wonder Health course that week. And I'm no longer saying to myself, I feel terrible. I'm not getting the course done. It's not done soon enough because there's just no way I could do it right yeah. now. And so rather than overscheduling, I really look at the time that I have and I allot what's the work that I need to do into those time blocks. And, and I'm, I'm sure it's different for everyone, but with the, you're talking about with that hustle and uh, flow course, um, is it better to have, like you're saying, Hey, for a week or for a couple of days, I'm only focused on this one project or like, you know, sometimes it's like, what, what is the, I can't remember the name of the the method, right? Is like the 25 minutes and then five Pomodoro. minutes. Pomodoro. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. But like, you know, hey, and, and then you could switch to different tasks. Like, is that something? I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong way. I just You know, everybody's different. Actually, Rahaf and I talk about this all the time because I love doing Pomodoro techniques. I love writing for 25 minutes, editing for 25 minutes, right? Taking a little snack break in between. Rahaf, on the other hand, it takes her like an hour to get into a real workflow. And then she can work for like three hours straight. Mm -hmm. That's very different for me. I'm more like a, you know, I, I sort of jump in, I jump out. Everybody is different. And so here's the thing, like, there are so many books that are out there that are just sort of like one size fits all, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's Atomic Habits or the 5am Club or Miracle Mornings or what have you. I'm a morning person. I wake up at 445. I go out, I row, I come back, I take a shower, I have my green tea, I sit down and boom, for three hours, I'm super creative. Rahaf, on the other hand, is a night person. So she never does anything in the morning. Like she does all of her great writing in the evening. So she's like 5 a.m. club. I want the 5 p.m. club, right? Yeah. So I think what we have to do is we have to find something that works for us. Mm -hmm. And just because it works for someone else doesn't mean it's it's going to work for you. And so, you know, I think, I think there's some universal things like items on a task list don't get done. Tasks that you put on your calendar do get done, right? Like if you assign them to a time, you'll get them done. But if they're just sitting on your task list, you'll ignore them. So there's some universal sort of best practices like that. But, you know, I'm not an eat the frog first person. I'm yeah. a, you know, screw the frog. Like yeah. I just, the frog gets eaten. The frog always gets eaten. So like, why am I going to give away my morning time when I'm super creative and really energetic to like doing invoices? Yeah. I don't care about that. Invoices are going to get done. It'll happen. So I just think you have to figure out what works for you and then experiment with the mat. Are you, are you like on an actual rower or are you out in like the lake or something and rowing? What's your, when you say rowing? Oh, I'm on the river. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, I'm on really? a competitive rowing team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. You used to be, or you are currently? I am. Yeah. Well, I'm not right now actually uh, oh, wow. because I'm in book launch. So I'm just not home enough. And what I said to the team was I, I cannot show up for you in the way that I would want you to show up for me. So I'm not going to like drop in here, drop in there, but I'll be back. I'll be back, you know, in the middle of the summer when we're, when we're getting ready for racing. Wow. That's pretty cool. I, don't, I didn't even know that was like a, a thing. I thought that was just like, you're in the Olympics or college or something. And that's no, it. no, no, no. There's all kinds of master's programs in every, every community in the world or it's, it's a great sport and you can do it. I mean, you can do it your whole life. It's fantastic. How, how often do you row? Like when you're out there, like in the morning, like, well, will you row a couple thousand yeah. meters or more? Yeah. Yeah. We usually run, we usually row like 10,000 meters and, okay. um, yeah, it's, it's like an hour and a half practice and you're doing, you know, you're doing, um, uh, drills and you're you're breaking the you're breaking each of the the strokes down so that you're perfecting okay. how you do it and then we'll do sprint pieces we'll do long pieces yeah it's 
it's it's it's it's a very humbling sport actually because as somebody who has always been an individual contributor type person yeah. to be in a boat where you all have to do exactly the same thing at exactly the same time yeah for stroke after stroke after stroke is is uh you know and really really sort of subsuming your ego to the the bigger picture is is that's a, that's a tough skill to learn in midlife well, that seems like one of those ultimate team sports because like, you know, basketball, right? You can kind of do one on one even when the five of you are on the court. But throwing, it's like if you're off just a slight bit, that that boat is not going in the right direction. If you if, if you are slower than everyone in the boat, if you're faster than everyone in the boat, right? Like yeah. I, I, um, I'm not a very good rower, uh, but I am strong as hell for my size and I'm stubborn as can be. So um, you got to cut me or kill me because I, I never quit, right? Like that's sort of the that's sort right. of the way it goes. So at one point I remember saying to the coach, I'm like, I don't understand, man. I'm, I'm pulling as hard as I can. Why isn't the boat going faster? I noticed that when I pull less hard, the boat goes faster. And he's like, exactly. He's like, you are, you are pulling faster than everyone else, which means you're actually putting the brakes on the boat mm. because you're moving your oar differently than them. So even though you're working harder, you're making everybody else slower, which means that they have to work harder to go faster. It's a little bit of like a mental screws you up a little. Yeah, you got to wow. like go slow. You got to slow down to speed up. And, you know, it's patience has never been my long suit. So it's sort of a fascinating experience of 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 really breaking down the difference between power and um sort of uh, i'd say power and grace and there's much more speed and grace than there is in power mm. wow yeah i'm sure there's a lot of lessons in there for rowing that you could learn you know you can relate, <laughs> oh, yes. relate to life and leadership and corporate america and whatever so absolutely well i leave those to the i leave those to the actual olympians yes. who, who, who give <laughs> keynote speeches but uh yeah so last time you're on you you kind of teased hey wonder hell and all that i, I have to imagine is there, you have ideas floating through your head right now of the next, the, the next book, next, whatever. But even if you don't, what, what's been on your mind? Like, is there, is there new things that you've been thinking about in terms of the, the evolution of yourself um, that may turn into something down the road, whether it's a book or keynote or anything like that? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. It's, it's funny how often I get that question. Like what's next? I'm like, I just published this book. Like it's still like the ink's still wet, but um so limitless was all about how do we figure out a definition of success that matters to us so that when we achieve it, we actually have success and happiness. Wonder hell is about this idea that even as we achieve success, something that matters a lot to us, we see other better, bigger versions of ourselves that put this burden of potential on us that we actually didn't even know existed. Right. And we have this moment where we're trying to figure out how do I go for it? Should I go for it? Do I want to go for it? What would it mean to go for it? Like, how do we grapple with this like additional layer that we just found inside of us as additional gear? And I think a third um, piece of what would be an interesting sort of triple play there would be, okay, well, now that you've done it, what kind of legacy are you leaving? So what does it actually, like, Wonder Hell is really about how you, like, Limitless is what mountain do you want to climb? Wonder Hell is you've climbed the mountain and now you've realized there's even more mountains beyond it. Isn't that exciting? And the next book might have something to do with, like, okay, now you're at the top of the last mountain, right? What does that yeah. mean? Now what? In 2021, I, I got very sick. 
Um, and I was, I had a, a very rare autoimmune disease that only 800 people in the entirety of the United wow. States have ever been diagnosed with. So, um, you know, you don't ever want to be the interesting patient, right? And I was the very, very interesting patient. In that moment, everything fell away. And I really became quite clear about what actually mattered to me and who I actually was. And in that moment, I focused on my family first. Mm -hmm. I focused on my athleticism second, because I just knew that I needed to keep moving forward. I signed up for a marathon. I was like, I'm either going to be 26.2 miles down the street or six feet under and nothing in between. As I just, I needed to keep moving forward or I would start moving backwards. And I focused on writing the first version of Wonder Hell because that's who I am. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I, I, I'm, I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm an athlete and I'm a writer. Like that's who I am. That's my identity. And everything else fell away. The volunteer work that I had been doing, the drama with friends, like anything that wasn't sort of mission critical and it was amazing to me how within milliseconds of getting a diagnosis, it was so clear who I was, who I wanted to be, how I wanted to show up in the world for whatever time I might have had left, yeah. which I have plenty of time left. I'm in remission. I'm healthy. Whatever remission means for a disease that 800 people have, like, what do they know? But it became very clear who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up and how every single piece of me was manifested through my actions in that way. And so it probably the next book will have something to do with that sort of legacy and clarity. I love that. I, I think it is it Naval Ravikant, I think said something around like, you know, we want so many things in life, but when we're when we're healthy, when we're unhealthy, we just want one thing. And yes. it's kind of like how everything else goes away and you kind of can focus, you know. Mm -hmm. So um you know, it puts things in perspective, really, of, of how fragile things are when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, it was the greatest gift. I hope I um, none of I hope I hope it's the greatest gift that I hope nobody ever has to get. But on the other side of it, I feel uh, quite lucky. Yeah. And that, again, if you take the pot, you could take it from both sides. I think you did the right thing of, hey, I'm going to look at it from a different perspective and, and use it as an advantage. To help yeah, I mean, that's sort of who I've always been as a human. I mean, I think there's some people who when they deal with difficulty, they sort of lay down and, 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 and stew and, and fester and flail. And I think there are other people who, when they deal with difficulty, they, they get up and they, and they fight. Hmm. And you know, I ended up seeing a psychiatrist after it was all said and done because I had a no small amount of PTSD from the experience. And I'd never been in therapy before. I'd, I'd never, I, nothing wrong. Therapy's great. Everyone should, I mean, they should like, everyone should just get therapy, just period. Um, but I just had never had it. And I remember sitting in the psychiatrist's office and I'm like, I don't understand, man. Like I'm in remission. Like I'm fine from the neck down. Like how come from the neck up, I can't like get my brain straight. And he goes, uh, there's two types of people in the world. There are people who fall apart during a crisis and there are the people who fall apart after a crisis. And obviously the people who fall apart after a crisis are stronger people, but they still fall apart. Like you mm. still have to deal with it, right? And so it was so liberating to feel normal about what didn't feel normal to me and that that was just an experience that – there, there was the, there was the physical healing and then there had to be the emotional healing, right? Like, but it, all of these things are our systems and they're all the same. And just cause you can't x-ray your emotions doesn't mean they're not real. Right. And so the, the, the whole journey to, to get quote unquote better taught me so much about just how 
people in this world are all struggling with so many complex issues and we can never fully understand any of them. We, hell, I didn't even understand my own while they were inside of me. So, you know, it, it gave me a lot of, I would say patience and uh, empathy as right. well. Yeah. Well, Laura, as always, this is a, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you're wide ranging conversation. We just had, I, oh my <laughs> gosh. And you're welcome back anytime now being a two-time guest. You can come back whenever you want. That's the, you pass the, you pass the portal there um, to the, to the podcast Amazing. abyss. Um, any, any last thought? I mean, obviously people can pick up the book. Any last thoughts, insights you'd want to share? Um, I would just say uh, that if you are, if you have experienced some level of success that you didn't know that you experienced, and in that experience of success, you didn't actually find happiness, but you found a bigger pace, a faster pace, a bigger goal, uncertainty, doubt, envy, uh, welcome to Wonder Hell. It's great in here. It's where all of our dreams come true. So um, I, I encourage people to pick up the book. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, bookshop.org if you want to uh, if you want to support your local bookshop and anywhere fine books are sold. Awesome, Laura. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in, and have a phenomenal day.